Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Last Sunday, we began a a brief three-week sermon series, just kind of starting the year. Uh, We want to aim at growing in our love for one another, not just in our feeling love for one another, but in genuinely, practically, consistently showing love to one another as a church. And so we looked last week at Romans chapter 12 uh, from one of Paul's letters, saw that when a person comes to belong to God, that person comes to belong to a community. We, we belong to one another. The, the image that Paul used in that uh, chapter was of a body, that the church is a body where every part is different and every part needs all the other parts. We need each other. But do we believe that really? Do we really believe that we need other people involved in our spiritual lives? Can't we connect with God just as well walking on the beach or fishing or journaling in a coffee shop or listening to a sermon on our phone as we can at church? Why do we need one another? Why do we need to tell anyone else about our fears or our doubts or our struggles? Can't we just tell them to God? Well, can't can our walk with God be just, just me and him? Why do we need to involve anyone else? Do we really need each other? Now, this passage is in your Bible in part to answer that question. So please follow along as I read from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray again. Father, the beauty of your word is just staggering. The beauty of its truth, the life that it calls us to. And and we know that if your spirit doesn't come, if your spirit doesn't come and help us to see what you want us to see, if your spirit doesn't come and help us to, to feel about this truth the way you want us to feel about it, if he doesn't come and work in our wills so that we want to live for you, then, then we're gonna go away unchanged. We want to encounter you in your word, and so would you come in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to see in this passage three things. We're going to see a reality to receive, a life to pursue, and a responsibility to embrace. And you have an outline in the back of your bulletin if you need it. First, a reality to receive. We who trust Christ are welcome in God's presence. I'm going to show you that in a minute, but I just I want to show you briefly kind of how this passage works together, okay? So look, look at the passage in front of you. I want you to see that there are three times in this passage where the author says, let us. There are three things he calls us to. Look at verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, and let us 
consider. So there are three things he calls us to, and all of it is built on the truth in verses 19 to 21, where he says, therefore, brothers, since, and then he tells us this truth, and then because of that truth, he says, now, because of that, let us, let us, let us. Does that make sense? So it all kind of hangs on this truth in these first three verses, and the truth is that those who trust Christ are welcome in God's presence. We can look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he says we can enter the holy places, we can go into the presence of God with confidence, with boldness, with, with no hesitation, nothing holding us back. Now, there's language in here that needs a little explanation, language that has to do with the Old Testament and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. So I want to explain how that works. So the, the center of life for God's Old Testament people, for the nation of Israel, was the temple. The temple was where God dwelt with his people, where he lived in their midst, where people could come and they could meet with him. So the, the temple was a sign of his love and his presence, a sign that he wanted to be with his people. But it was also a continual reminder that because of our sin, because of our flaws, because of the ways we want the wrong things and do the wrong things and say the wrong things, because we fall short of God's standard, because of our sin, we can't come in to where he is. We don't have direct access to God. We can't draw near to him. Because in the temple, the temple was where the holy places were, and we couldn't come into the holy places. So in in the temple, there were two rooms. The first room, as you came in, was called the holy place. And through the holy place, behind, there were curtains at both of these places. There's a curtain, then the holy place, a second curtain, and then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And access to the holy places was incredibly restrictive. So into the first room, into the holy place, only priests and Levites could ever go. Levites were, the the tribe of Levi was one of the tribes of Israel, and they were set apart to serve at the temple. So only priests and Levites could ever go into the first room and into the second room, Into the most holy place, only one person could go, the high priest, only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and only carrying the blood of a sacrifice. Because the most holy place was the place where God's presence dwelt, where God, as it were, sat on his throne over the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, where where God's God's full holy presence was, and, and nothing unclean or impure could ever come into that space, which means which means none of us could ever come into that space. Only the high priest, only once a year, and only carrying blood, only bringing a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So he would come in on the day of atonement, and the people would be forgiven. But even though they were forgiven, they still couldn't come in. They couldn't draw near. And so all these rituals drilled into the hearts of God's people. What you need more than anything is the presence of God, the nearness of God. And because of your sin, you can't draw near. He's too holy, and you're too flawed. Because of your sin, you have to stay out. The curtain of the temple was like a big keep-out sign. Right? When I was growing up, my friends and I, there was this hillside behind our neighborhood, and we would play in the, in the woods there, and we would you know, we'd explore it, and we'd go down there with slingshots and shoot each other with paintballs. It was incredibly irresponsible, but we were kids. And, but in, on this hillside, there was, you get to a point where there's a fence, and there's a sign, and the sign says, no trespassing. And that means beyond this point, you cannot go. This is where your, your place ends here. And the, the curtain of the temple was like, it was, the, it was like that. It was like this no trespassing 
no sin beyond this point sign. I wonder how seriously we take the holiness of God. Do we feel deeply that God is too pure to look on sin, that he can't just overlook the ways we ignore him and mistreat one another. When we, when we speak harsh to our children because we're stressed about something else, when we give our, our, a cold shoulder to our spouse because they're not meeting our expectations, when we, when we conceal the full truth of a situation from our boss because we don't want her to know ways in which we fell short, when we sin, do we really own the fact that our evil choices offend God? We, we saw last week in Romans chapter 12 that God calls Christians to abhor what is evil, to have a horror of evil. And the reason he calls us to that is because that's how God feels about sin. He has a horror of it. it. It horrifies him. It offends him. He can't even look upon it. And sin keeps us from drawing near to God. But... The author of this letter tells us that something has changed. Something is different than it was, because what does he say in verses 19 and 20? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, now we can come into the holy places. We can come right through the curtain. We can come right in to where God is. What has happened? What, what made the difference? He tells us, he says, that we come through the blood of Jesus. He says that the way was opened through his flesh. What happened? Jesus died for us is what happened. That's what made the difference. The sin that kept us out of God's presence, the penalty for that sin is death. That was the meaning of all the sacrifices. When, when we sinned, something had to die because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus took the death our sin deserves on the cross. He offered himself as our sacrifice. And the, the gospel writers, three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that when Jesus died, at the moment when he died on the cross, in the temple, the curtain was torn top to bottom because the death of Jesus opened the way for sinners to come into God's presence. He made it possible for us to come all the way in, to come confidently, to come boldly. Now, when I was growing up, I used to visit my dad at work. You guys probably did that too. You visit your parents at work. I would go visit my dad at work, and he, he worked in a place that did research and development, and so there were some checkpoints kind of you had to get through in order to get, to get to where he worked. So, you know, we'd have to get past the, the, the fence to the, to the facility, and, and that was kind of one, one checkpoint keeping people out, and then you'd have to get to the front desk, and there was security there. You'd have to get past that to get to where he was. His hallway, you know, the door was closed to that. His office had another door, and so there were all these points at which they, they were making sure not just anybody can, can walk right in here, but I was his son, which meant none of those things were meant to keep me out. I could come boldly. I could come confident. I could climb on his couch. I could do whatever I wanted. Not, not whatever I wanted, but I, I could come all the way in because I knew that I was welcome. I could draw near. I had access. And that's what everyone has who trusts in Jesus. We have confident access to God. And our confidence doesn't just come from Jesus' death for us, but it comes from his life. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus didn't stay dead. 
He rose from the dead. He's alive, and he is forever in God's presence, guaranteeing that everyone who trusts in him is welcome there. This is how one hymn writer says it. He says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Because Jesus is welcome in the presence of God, we are welcome in the presence of God. Nobody can say to us, you have to leave, because Jesus says, they're with me. They can stay. They belong where I belong. Do you have this confidence? Have you received this reality by faith? Have you trusted Jesus to make you welcome in the presence of God? If you have, there's a life that flows from that reality, and that's what we want to look at secondly. It's a life we're called to pursue, spiritual intimacy and enduring hope. Remember that the author's argument here is saying, because this thing is true, let us do this and let us do this and let us do this. And so the third one is kind of different from the first two. We're going to look at that in a minute. But look at the first two. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's saying if we really understand what Jesus has done, if we know deeply that because of his death, we're eternally welcome in God's presence. It will never be turned away. If we know that, that should produce in us a life of confidence. Confidence towards God, confidence in drawing near to him, but also confidence towards the future. Confidence that, that God is going to care for us. He say, the word he uses there is hope. Holding fast the confession of our hope. So the, the, and, but the fact that he tells us, he tells us, let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, which means this isn't automatic. It doesn't just happen. Just because you can draw near to God doesn't mean you will. That's why he calls us to do it. We have to pursue it. But why should we? What is so good about drawing near to God? I have, I have young kids. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And one of the regular, I don't want to call them battles, but Points of friction we have in our family is over trying new foods, okay? This, every, every parent understands what this is like. My wife plans meals that are both delicious and nutritious. She works hard to, to hide the nutrition, so she purees the vegetables so no one has to see a little bit of carrot or a little piece of spinach leaf in their food. It's totally invisible. But our kids, when they see new food, even if it's something we think they're going to like once they try it, they just don't, they don't want anything to do with it. They want to live on peanut butter and mac and cheese. Why can't they just live on peanut butter and mac and cheese? They don't understand. They don't want to try these new foods. Now, if you're new to Christianity, when we talk about drawing near to God, you might have the same reaction my children have to new meals. You have no appetite for it. Nearness to God. Why would I want that? It sounds boring or strict or guilt-inducing. I probably wouldn't like it. But listen to how the writers of the Psalms talk about it. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 5 of the same psalm. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. For the psalmists, the presence of God was an ocean of joy and love and satisfaction. It was, it's the feast our souls are longing for. It's what we were made for. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the door to the feast is flung wide. Draw near, come in, drink deeply, be satisfied. And, and to make sure that no one holds back, no one says, I'm too bad. I, I've fallen too far short. If you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't say, draw near. He says to us, draw near in full assurance with your hearts sprinkled clean, your bodies washed. Know that if you've trusted in Jesus, you've been washed clean. You've been made holy. You can come all the way in. That, that old heart that you had, that dead, cold heart, the heart that wanted all the wrong things, through faith in Jesus, that's been removed from you. And you have a new heart, a clean heart, a heart that can draw near to God. So come in and meet with him. Draw near. Draw near anytime and anywhere. Draw near as you read the Bible. Draw near as you pray. Draw near as you worship. Draw near as you gather together in fellowship. Draw near with confidence. And this confidence isn't just in our approach to God. This is a confidence we have as we face the future. Verse 23, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This passage describes a posture of, the, of heart towards the future that says, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know who's in charge of what's going to happen, and I don't need to be afraid of what's coming. God has made me promises, and God keeps his promises. It's a posture of heart that says, even though I know there's going to be trouble, I know there's going to be joy in my future because God is going to make everything right in the end. It's hope. Our ultimate hope is what the author says in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. He says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to rid the world of death, and pain, and fear, and loneliness. He's going to make everything the way it was always meant to be. But our hope isn't just all the way at the end. It's for God's taking care of us all the way along the way. It's what he says, that God is going to be with us continually. He says in chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's our hope. No matter what happens, God's going to be with us. Our hope is that he's continually at work in our lives. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. When Christians face the future, we have hope because God is in control of the future. He will be with us. He will work for our good, and he's going to bring it to the exact conclusion he wants for it, for our joy forever. And the writer says that we should hold that hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. If we know that Jesus died to open the way for us to come into God's presence, are any of his promises going to fail? If he did that for us, is there anything he's not going to come through on? 
He will always take care of us. So that's the life we're called to pursue, spiritual intimacy and enduring hope. But there's one more call in this passage, one more, let us. And we can't do the first two if we don't do this one. So the thirdly, a responsibility to embrace, encouraging one another towards maturity. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love and good works describes what our life should be like as Christians. That should be the output of our life. Because we've received and experienced the love of God, because we, we've been given these new hearts, we should live lives of love and good works. We should be looking for ways to care for one another and serve people. But it's, he says it's not automatic. He says that we need to stir one another up to love and good works. So it happens in community. We need each other. Now, your translation of verse 24, it might say that we are to spur one another on to loving good deeds. And that captures something in the original language that stir up doesn't do. Because this word, this word stir up, you could also translate that irritate. We're to irritate one another to love and good works. And, and that's what he talks about. We're to spur one another on. What's a spur? A spur is something sharp, right? That you dig into an animal to make it go the way you want it to go. We're, he says we're supposed to do that for one another. We're supposed to kind of dig into one another to keep us moving in the way we're supposed to go. We're supposed to irritate each other. We're supposed to make each other uncomfortable if we're not living the kinds of lives we're supposed to be living. In, in healthy Christian community, if you start to go the wrong way or you start to drift, someone kindly, gently spurs you. It irritates you, makes you uncomfortable, gets you going the way you're supposed to go. And for a community to become that, you need two ingredients. And he tells us what they are in verse 25. We need proximity. We need to actually be in each other's lives. He says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So we need proximity, but we also need encouragement. He says, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in order for us to be stirring one another up, spurring one another on, we need to be together. We need to be in proximity, but we also need to be, as we meet, speaking to one another in ways that, that drive us towards maturity. So what does it look like to encourage one another? This word he uses is an interesting word. It's, it's difficult to translate, and it, it pops up in the New Testament in different ways. So sometimes it's translate comfort, and sometimes it's translate urge. Sometimes it's translate plead or beg. The noun form of this word is the word that Jesus uses the night before he dies. He tells his disciples, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ha- send a helper to be with you. He means the Holy Spirit. And that word helper is the same word. It's just the noun form of this, the comforter, the urger, someone to come alongside you. My pastor, when I was in college, used to say that, that the ministry of the Spirit, part of it is to, to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. He, he comes along and he knows exactly what each one of us need. And when we're too comfortable, when we're kind of drifting, he stirs us up. He gets us going. He, he makes us a little uncomfortable. When, when we're, but when we're afraid, when we feel guilty, when we're, we're overwhelmed, then he comforts, he assures, he reminds us who we are. So to encourage someone is to do that for them. It's to speak just the right word to help them go where they need to go. And sometimes what we need is correction. So, the, so earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, exhort one another. It's the same word. 
exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, even though we have new hearts, we're still prone to wander. And so we're supposed to speak to one another to help us not keep going down the way of sin, right? When we, we can be hardened by it, the more you sin, the less bad you feel about it. The more you sin, the easier it is to keep going. The more you sin, the less you miss God. You can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and that's why we're supposed to speak to one another. We're supposed to correct one another to say, this isn't the way. Turn back. This isn't who you are. I can remember so vividly a time when, when one, of, one of my friends had to correct me like this. It was, it was years back. It was, it was early in my marriage. Um, it was a guy that I'd been, I'd been close to for years before I got married, and we, we were spending some time together. We were in his car, and he said to me, he just very directly, Brett, you have not been a very good friend to me since you got married. And I know that you have to give attention to your family, and that's important, but, but you have not been the friend you ought to be. You've been pulling back from community, and I need you to know that that's happening. And he was right. And that was hard to hear, but it helped me to make a change. The biggest problems in our lives are the ones we are least likely to see. And so we need people around us who see our lives, who can put a spotlight on the problems we're having so that we can see them, so we can do something about them. I don't know how much this happens at sunrise. I hope it's happening so quietly and gently that I never hear about it. But if we want it to happen more, we need to cultivate relationships that are deep and full of trust. We need to really know each other. We need to tell one another how we're struggling and how we need to be prayed for and the questions we're afraid to be asked and, and for that reason we need someone to ask us. We need to help one another to know how to do this for us. You need that. Do you have people in your life who know they have permission to say something if they see something? You need that, and I need that too. So sometimes encouraging looks like correcting, but sometimes it looks like comforting. All of us have times when we're more aware of our sin than we are of God's love for us and what Jesus has done for us. There are times when we feel like we have to hang back from God, like we, we're not really welcome. We have to do some penance before we can draw near. And we need someone in those times to comfort us with the gospel, to say, your security in the presence of God is not secured by your performance. Jesus has opened the way, and you can come near. And there are times when we'll suffer, and we'll feel like maybe God doesn't see us. Maybe he doesn't care that much. Maybe, he doesn't, maybe he's indifferent to what we're going through, and we need someone to comfort us and to say to us, listen, God knows exactly what you're going through. He has not left you. He never will, and this is not going to last forever. We all need our faith strengthened and our hope strengthened sometimes, and God's provision for that is one another. If we're going to become a church that abounds in love and good works, a church that shows this community what the love and mercy of God look like, we're going to need to be a church that encourages one another, and that's going to take wisdom. We're going to need to know what word to speak and when to speak it, because look at what he says in verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. He says we have to think about it. We have to consider it. We have to ponder it. We can't just say what comes into our minds. We have to consider what the word is that's going to serve a person. 
So do you make time in your, and space in your life to think about the people you're closest to and, and what you could say to them to help them grow in Christ? Do you, do you ever pray with someone specifically in mind and just say, God, what is it that Tim needs to hear that's going to help him? Or just flip through your Bible and think, what is the word from here that's going to speak into his life that's going to help him go the way he needs to go? Part of loving one another is encouraging one another, and we can't do that unless we spend time together. He says, not neglecting to meet together. And that doesn't just mean don't miss church. Okay? Not missing church is a good idea. You can't encourage us very well if you're at brunch. But it's not, it's not just that. You can, you can come every week and not do what this is calling us to do, not encourage, not speak to one another. This requires really being in each other's lives. And so I want to suggest five venues, very briefly, five venues of life, places where our lives touch other people's lives, where we can be encouraging one another. First, Sunday mornings. Be here on Sundays. Be praying before you come that God would use you to encourage someone, and then look for the opportunities as they come. Secondly, community groups. This is where you really get to know someone. So be the kind of group member you want everyone else to be. Be the one who says when you're struggling and need prayer. Be the one who tells other people how they can encourage you. Third venue, marriage. Marriage is, among other things, a spiritual friendship. We should be the primary encouragers of our spouses. So don't get so caught up in the logistics of family life that you neglect your responsibility to speak words of life to one another. Fourth, meetups. Think about whether there's someone you'd like to get coffee or breakfast with just so you can know how they're doing and encourage them. Maybe there's someone you want to get together with once a month or once a week just to help one another grow. And finally, run-ins. Now, this is a small island, and we're going to run into one another at the grocery store and at work, at the bank, at the beach. And so what if we started each day by praying, God, you know who I'm going to run into today. Give me something to say to them when I see them to encourage them in you. We are not going to do this perfectly, but we won't do it at all if we don't believe deeply what this passage teaches, that there's a beautiful life of intimacy with God, and hope in the future that, that Jesus makes possible, and the only way for us to pursue it is together. Encouraging one another, being corrected when we stray, being comforted when we sin and when we suffer. The only way is to do it together. The God who welcomes us into his presence by grace wants to use you to pour grace into the lives of others. Do you want him to do that? Let's pray for his help. Our Father, we thank you for the access we have to you by faith. We thank you that we can draw near. We thank you that our sin doesn't keep us out, that our failures don't keep us out, that no one can keep us out because you have made us your own through Christ. And I pray that you would help us to draw near and that you would help us to help one another draw near, that you would use us to encourage one another towards you and towards the life you have for us so that, so that we live lives of love that bring glory to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.